0: Oh my, I almost can't speak after that. Faultless to stand before the throne. That's amazing. Standing in His righteousness. I hope that that never gets old for you to hear the good news of the gospel. I mean, grasp that. There's only one hope you have, and it's Jesus. And we get to stand before Him robed in Christ's righteousness, which makes us a child of His. Throughout all of eternity. Let me thank the Lord for that. Lord, thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that we can sing those words, and just as we sing them in faith, they are certain because of the promises of your word. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that today, and I pray in whatever ways we need to be filled up with that grace that you would fill us today. And that we would find great joy in who you are and what we have because of what you've done for us through Christ. So Lord, satisfy us today in you. And give us a longing for that day when the trumpet will sound and we will know fully what we believe in part right now, Lord, by faith receiving. We'll know fully on that day. So Lord, today revive our hearts, stir in us, deepen our love for you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You get excited about the gospel? Am I the only one? Anyone else excited about the gospel in here? I mean, yeah, it's the good news of the gospel. And so that's good for us. All right, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be there this morning. In Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 54, as you're turning there, let me give you just a few updates. You heard about the search committee, we're Getting that up and running today, we do need to hear from you. We will be at least forming that search committee and then reaching out to those who have been nominated um, that we think would best serve us for that. And so we thank you for the input you've given us um, at this point. And some of you should be hearing from us soon. And we're going to try to put that together. Uh, some have asked about the campus pastor um, job description, and we're going to try to put that in a place where you can access it as well so you can see exactly what we're looking for. It will give you prayer items that you can be praying for uh, in that particular regard. This is an this is important time for this church as they begin the process of looking for the next campus pastor. And then we continue to look for a worship leader. Thanks so much to the team that continues to put all this together together. I think it's just so important for us, and they do such a wonderful job with what they do, and just be praying for them as well, Um, the time and energy they're putting in. We'd love to have someone to provide the overall leadership for that. We have an interim deacon team that's up and rolling, just want you to, I think I announced that a few weeks back, and they are in the process of trying to put together all of our structures in place, so how can we better support the ministries of this church, and so many of you were already given us such good time to set up and tear down crew, again it's just phenomenal all that takes place, and we've got all the worship team that's a part of that, ushering, I mean the coffee good coffee by the way for church coffee and so we've got all that over there it's just wonderful all the things that people are doing our ministry staff here is evan here this morning evan is here this morning so he was gone a few weeks so he's going to be coming back in and and working with our youth along with jacob but welcome back evan to you glad to have you here and then you received an update uh, from Robert Bishop this past week about some of the things that are happening on campuses Johnny here this morning, Johnny you're way back there stand up so people can see you uh, there was an announcement made about Johnny and about a role that he's going to be playing in our church the specifics of that was a little premature just to let you know we're still working through that Johnny knows that um, he's, working at, he's working on his masters at Talbot in evangelism and discipleship and we'd love to use him in that capacity in this church he wants to plant right here He loves being a part of what's going on here, but we're still working on the specifics of what an internship would look like for him in the days ahead. So be praying for that as well. Uh, We just love meeting with people like Johnny. There are so many phenomenal people who are here at this church. You heard earlier about the supper groups. I do encourage you to sign up for those, especially if you're not in a life group. This is a chance for you to get to know other people um, in this body, and we feel like that's a need Uh, for us to get better connected with that. Um, Our life groups continue to go well. Thanks so much for all the leaders who are involved in that as well. They give a lot of time walking through life with people. And there's growth that's taking place in those groups. And so I want to encourage you to, to remain connected to your life group and pray for your leaders there. As well. I've been preaching a lot here. You may say, well, I thought I wasn't going to preach every week. Well, I'm not. Um, just schedule wise, this is the way it worked out. But in the weeks ahead, I think I preach next week, and then Robert will be back, and Andrew will be back, and then Michael Figpin Is Michael here this morning? Anywhere? Michael is just being slammed right now with, he's the executive director of Evangelical Theological Society. The meetings which begin tomorrow in, or Tuesday in San Antonio. I'll be flying out tomorrow for that. But Michael's wants to plug into this congregation as well as have has been attending here. And we'll hear from him, him in the weeks ahead as well. And then we'll be launching into our series, Taking Us Up to Christmas, which is going to be a lot of fun as well. All right. Are you in your Bibles, Luke chapter 11, verses 15 to 54? What in the world? Count them up. Any good math majors in here, anyone graduated from high school, that's 40 verses that we have today. And so I've asked, and it's been um, accepted that I could preach for two hours so we could work through those verses. So just bear with me. We're going to be here a little while. There's, I think I shared a few weeks back when I was in Uganda and I ran into those four tribes that were in conflict And as the tribes were in conflict, we gathered the pastors together because we really believed that unity would occur with those four tribes, with the church being the center of that. And that began with the pastors. That's why we called them all together. But you need to understand what's going on. Those pastors who were divided from other believers, they were not waking up in the morning saying, I'm going to rebel against Jesus. I forget what he says about unity. What does he know anyway? We'll divide from these other believers. It's our prerogative. We're of this tribe and they're of those other tribes. They didn't wake up doing that. What we need to understand is the the concept of tribe goes so deep into their worldview and the way they live their lives that they weren't even given it second thought, that they were separated from these other tribes. And they could read unity in Christ through those lenses, and they could believe that they were being obedient to Jesus because in their tribe they were unified. Do you follow what I'm saying here? Now, as an outsider, I can go, hey, there's a problem here. You all should be unified. But there are certain things in our culture that go so deep that when we look at God's word, we miss the point. So recently I was also in Bangkok, Thailand, and I realized that the table I was sitting around, we were having a small group discussion. I can't even remember what we were discussing. But I remembered it was related to my next, con, my next um, comment that I made. I looked around the table and I realized of the five people who were sitting at the table with me, four of them were from India. And we were talking about something along the lines of unity. And I looked them all, at them all and said, can you tell me how the caste system in India works itself out in the church when God calls us to unity. Well, their heads all went down because I had asked the major question. And again, my point was not to, as an outsider, say, you guys need to get your act together. My point was, and my point is this for us right now, is some things in our culture go so deep that we read God's word with those lenses. And we actually believe that we're being obedient when, in fact, we're not. Now, what does all that have to do with what we're doing here this morning? When we get to this passage this morning, Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 54, Jesus is going to take on the religious leaders. So everything, beginning in verse 14, is just going to escalate into where he's going to get into the face of the Pharisees. And he's going to pronounce woes to them a funeral dirge to them at that point. And a lawyer's going to stand up and he's going to say, hey, wait a second, you're offending me too. And Jesus says, oh, yeah? Wait till you hear this. And he goes after them as well. Woe to you, lawyers. And by the time we get to the end of this passage, they're going to want to take up um, stones and kill Jesus just about. They're starting to look for a way that they can take him down. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is simply walking into a certain religious mindset And they can open up God's Word and they can read it and they see themselves as being obedient to it because their cultural mindset goes so deep that they read God's Word through those lenses. They interpret God's Word through those lenses. Do you follow me? What I'm doing right now. All right, now next step is us today. Living in the United States of America, it is also true of us. That there's a certain worldview that we can be bombarded with. There's a certain way of looking at life, thinking about life, certain things that we say are okay and not okay. And then when we open up God's Word and we read them, we can actually read God's Word through those same lenses and justify behaviors that are not pleasing to the Lord. So for us to understand this passage could be quite difficult. But as we go through here and we see what Jesus has to say to people like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, we need to understand that if Jesus were standing here today, he could walk into our own worldview as well and maybe have some very choice words for us also. Now, how do we step out of ourselves and look on the inside and see what those things might be for us? It's easy for me to see the four tribes in Uganda and say, Hey guys, this is wrong. This needs to change. It's easy for me to sit around a table with four guys from India and say, you know, the caste system is really bad. You guys need to get over that and become one in Christ. But what do I need to see about my life? What do you need to see about your life? That if you could step on the outside, you would see that you justify certain behaviors and activities. Not because God's word would lead you to that but because your worldview goes so deep that you're justifying those, and actually you are in opposition to the lordship of Christ in your life. In other words, this can be a really heavy topic. Now, this passage is not going to take us there. It's not going to say, oh, and by the way, let me address the United States of America. That's not going to happen. We need the Holy Spirit to work for us. We need him to be active in our hearts for that to take place. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to do it. And I'm going to give you a moment to open up your own heart to the Lord. Say, Lord, please, I don't want to oppose you. Teach me. What is it I need to hear today? And press it on my heart. Take a moment and pray to the Lord, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, I want to pray that you would help us today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in our midst. And apart from anything that I would say or this passage says, that you would say it to us individually, that you would help us to know those areas of our lives that we have quarantined off and you are not allowed into those areas. Lord, I pray today would be a day where you move in and take up residence in ways like you haven't previously, and that we would find our hearts changed. Lord, we've got our Bibles opened up to Luke 11, verses 14 through 54, and we ask that for such a time as this, on this day in La Habra, California, that you would make these words come alive for us. And I pray for each one who is seated here today that you would, in your mercy, help them to receive whatever it is that you want to say to them today, and that you would help our lives to change. We need you, Lord. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So you can see the title I put on the message this morning is, How Might We Challenge Jesus' Authority? in our life. So let's think about the passage here. I'm not going to read through this passage at the beginning because it's going to take a long time, but I am going to read through it as we go through each section so that we can try to grasp. And rather than get bogged down in what's going on in this particular passage, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to read through it and then give you the big picture of what's going on because it was amazing. This is some of the hardest sections of the Gospels in my opinion. And so in the book of Luke, this is a string of passages that I find myself kind of scratching my head going, "Ah, (laughs) what did they understand? Because I don't get what he just said. And so I want to try to keep it big picture. What was amazing to me is as I worked through this passage, I began to see a, a unity to what's going on here. So let's think about the big picture. Look at verse 14. Thinking about the big picture is going to be important for us. In verse 14... Now when it was cast on a demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. That's where we are going to begin. Jesus is putting on display again another sign and people are watching this and they are marveling. Now we're going to find that's insufficient. Marveling will get you nowhere in the kingdom of God. But they are marveling at what's taking place in verse 14. As we move through the passage, there are going to be various challenges to Jesus' authority. Look at, at verse 14, or verse 15, he says, But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In other words, this man is demonic himself. The power that he's exercising is of the prince of demons. Demons. Verse 16, while others, by the way, that's going to be dealt with in verses 17 um, through 28. We're going to find Jesus is going to pick that up. But then it goes on in verse 16, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. They're just badgering him. Give us another sign. They marveled at what he did. Then they wanted to see next, next. How about the next sign? And so they're challenging Jesus rather than recognizing that particular sign for what it is. And the compilation of all the other signs, they continued to ask for more. So Jesus is going to deal with that in verses 29 to 36. So he's gonna, th- those are the two issues that he's going to pick up. And then in verses 37 and 38 is when Jesus is then going to take on the Pharisees. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And so he's going to raise up an issue. In their mind, they're thinking, hey, if he's a religious leader, then why doesn't he follow our rules? So they're going to question ultimately Jesus' righteousness at that point. So the Lord's going to have some words for him, going to give those Pharisees some woes. In verse 45, the lawyer's going to step in and say, wait a second, teacher, in saying these things, you insult me also, us also. And so Jesus says, I'm glad you brought that up. Let me be very clear about what I have to say to you. And he's going to go right at them as well. Then we're going to get to the last few verses, verses 53 and 54. And he went away from there. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him. This is not a friendly conversation. They're they're coming out of this very difficult time where Jesus said very difficult things, and they're coming at him now to speak about many things. But notice verse 54. What is their intent? Not to find out information. Not to learn from this teacher. They're lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you understand the the story of Jesus, you understand that's exactly what happens, isn't it? They try to bring him before the religious leaders for blasphemy. So they're trying to find this. Well, that's how his life's going to end. He actually is going to be charged with that. But that's the big picture of what's going on. And I don't want us to get lost in this material. I want you to see that big picture. We're going to move from marveling, about Jesus two, trying to get rid of him. That's the way this passage is going to unfold. And it's not the only time it's going to happen in Luke. It's not the first time it's happened to Luke. Jesus is coming toward the end of his ministry and he is clashing now with the religious systems of the day because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. In the same way that as we go out to complete the Great Commission, we are clashing with the religions of the day for the very same reason, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but through him. And we continue that push ...throughout this world until Jesus comes back and establishes his, his throne. Now, again, I, I've mentioned before in the past... ...and you'll continue to hear me mention this when we go through Luke... ...I'm always interested in what the other gospel writers do with this similar material. And all of this material we have in Luke is, is put in different order in the other gospels. Remember, the gospels are not trying to give us a chronological picture of what's going on in Jesus' life. There's a theological purpose... Now, the, the, the events are probably not way out of sorts, but they put certain things together because they're trying to make theological points. They have different audiences as well. For instance, when Jesus doesn't wash like the Pharisee thought he should in this passage, Luke doesn't say anything about it. But Mark, the Gospel of Mark, which is written to a specific Jude, uh, Gentile audience, will take time to explain Why it is that the Pharisee is upset. Do you follow that? It's just a different audience. And so Mark's going to include information that Luke doesn't have. And so I like to go back and forth. And here is one of the main points I want you to see. And we're going to end up here at the end of this message. We're going to end up at the parable of the sower. The soils is what I like to call it. But in each of the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, what happens is after all of this takes place, They each go into the parable of the soils. Now, in Luke, we've already seen the parable of the soils. Now, why do I think that's significant? Here's why. Everything that we're going to read in verses 15 through 54, all the events that transpire in this passage have everything to do with the condition of the heart. That's why Matthew goes there. That's why Mark goes there. Because after all of this, Jesus is going to say, there was a certain seed, and that seed was the word of God. And a sower went out to sow and he scattered that seed and it landed on individuals' hearts. And some, the, Satan snatched it away and others, it was the cares of this world or riches or worry and it was gone and maybe a plant began, but then it was gone. And then we get to the good seed. That was a seed that went down into good soil, a plant comes up and it bears fruit. And ultimately, what's going on in this passage is Jesus is drawing a line in the sand Some of you, the seed is landing on good soil, and for some of you, it's not. There are certain things that are taking you away, and that's why these challenges are important, because the word is coming to these people, but they're going to oppose Jesus. They're going to challenge him. They're going to turn away from Jesus, because there's other things that are way more important for them in the same way that the parable of the soil makes that clear to us, they, they receive the word, but then the worries of the world come along. So they turn away from Jesus to try to find something else that will deal with, to help them deal with their worries. Or riches come along. They no longer want to live for Jesus. It's riches they want to live with, live for. They want to build a bigger barn. And so they're going to turn away. The people in this passage are turning away from Jesus. We're finding there's not a lot of good soil right here in this passage. So look at verse 14. Here's where we see the marveling of the masses. And I want to underscore that because it's really important for some things that Jesus is going to say later. So this is the proper response to Jesus' uh, miracles. They, they see this sign and they respond to it. Now later on, Jesus is going to use the word. Look at it in verse, it's very interesting, verse uh, 20. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you, the finger of God... I don't know if that causes your mind to go back to the Old Testament in any way. But the finger of God, that's what the magicians said. Back in the early chapters of Exodus, when Moses comes along and he does his first miracle, the water of the Nile is turned to blood, the magicians stand up and say, that's not a big deal, watch this, and they do it too. And then a week later, Um, Moses has frogs come up, and frogs go everywhere throughout the land. The magicians say, that's not a big deal. Watch this, and they can do it. And then on the third one, dust comes up, and they become gnats. Okay, Southern California, that probably doesn't communicate anything to you whatsoever. But you live in other parts of the United States, it's horrible. And whatever you've ever experienced with gnats... Just multiply that by a million gazillion and that's what was going on the land of Egypt. And all of a sudden the magicians go, "Uh, uh, we we can't do this. And what do they say to Pharaoh? This is the finger of God. Now they marvel at that, but notice it doesn't change Egypt. it's, It's one thing to marvel at a sign, But the intent, when you read throughout the Old Testament and you get into the New Testament, signs were to produce belief. I should have tested anyone that had my Old Testament class, like Emily, to see if she could pull that up. Signs were to produce belief. And so you weren't just to marvel at these things. Wow, look at that. Can you do another one? Please, please? Whoa. Can you do it? Please? Wow. No, it was to produce belief. The, 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 the proper response to watching Jesus cast out a demon was not to go, hmm, I think you do this by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. The proper response was to prostrate yourself on the ground and say, behold, the king of glory. To sing what we sang in that first song, Jesus, Messiah, name above all names, beautiful Savior. That would be the proper response. All we see here, though, is marveling at Jesus And so what we want to make, what what the Gospels want to make clear is that when Jesus performs these signs, it is a true pointer to the fact that, oh, he's the Messiah. Old Testament people, saints of old, this is the one you've been looking for. He's here. He's right in your midst. There he is. And so every sign Jesus did was pointing to the fact that he's the promised one. Genesis 3:14 the seed of the woman's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Aha, here he is. And he's crushing the kingdom of darkness right now. There's a man overtaken by a demon who can't speak and Jesus says, "Come out." And the man begins to speak again. That's a sign that the kingdom of darkness is being crushed. And when Jesus takes loaves and feeds 5,000 or 4,000 or raises Lazarus from the dead, those are signs that say he is the one. And instead, what we find here is a challenge to who he is. Now, let me just bring it into our life a little bit right now. When Jesus shows up and he says, this is the word, obey this word, follow this word live your life by this word we're also supposed to look at those signs that he did and say he's the one we need to follow and we need to follow him but if we're not careful we're just like the religious leaders we're just like the pastors in uganda we're just like those pastors in india we can look at jesus through our own lens and justify the ways that we want to live and we too oppose jesus We challenge him. Well, let's look at the challenges we have in this passage. I'm just going to look at these big, big picture. First challenge is found in chapter 11, verse 15. I've already mentioned that. Some said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Okay, so they've got a problem with Jesus. They're missing the point. Now, Jesus is going to give them an argument as he goes down through this. Now, I'm not an expert on logical argumentation. And so, as I, I was studying this a few weeks back, probably about a month ago, studying this passage, I began to work my way through it, and, and I decided to, to consult with Doug Guy. Doug Guy, is Doug here this morning? I, didn't, I don't see him anywhere. He, he pops his head in here every now and then, just lives right up the road. But he teaches philosophy at Talbot, and he's very good at logic. And so, I said, Doug, here's my attempt at this. Respond to me. And he came up with a four-page response. To what Jesus is doing in this passage. And he sent me an email back and said, thanks for keeping me up all night. This was fascinating to watch Jesus' argument. Now, some of you may be going, well, that's way too much. Others of you may be going, that sounds interesting. Well, I've got copies up here of what Doug sent me. Because I thought someone probably is interested in what Jesus is doing. He's doing something masterfully here. He is taking them on. And the ultimate point of what Jesus is saying is what I want us to see. And it's really in verse 23 that Jesus is going to make that ultimate point that I think is so powerful for us. We're going to be looking at this verse throughout this morning. It says there, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So that's going to be a major point. But let's look at what it says here. But he, knowing their thoughts... Said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, whom do your sons cast out? So he's made two points here. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That's a divided kingdom. It's going to fall. Second point is, if you say, I cast out demons by Satan, then who do your sons cast out demons by? They will now be your judges. And so that kind of shuts them up. Verse 20, but if it's by the finger of God, and there's that Exodus reference. I, I don't think it's by accident at all that Jesus is saying that. But if it's by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words... Listen up. The Messiah is here. And you can oppose it. You can stand against it. You can use your weak argumentation. But the kingdom of God is here at this point. He goes on and says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, which he trusted, and divides his spoil. Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so again, this is why we're talking about the soils of the heart. What is the condition of your heart is what he's saying. Listen, you've got a sign right in front of you. And you're trying to say, Beelzebub. And I'm telling you, if you get this one wrong, this is going to be problematic for you. But I'm asking you to think through. And he reaches back, finger of God, X's. I'm asking you to think back through all that God's been doing And think about what is now in your midst. The Messiah is here and don't you miss it. If you're not with me, you're against me at this point in time. And so Jesus is taking on these challenges to him. And so then we get to verses 24 to 28. And Jesus continues on and says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says. Now, we could sit and talk about this, the habitation of demons, blah, 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 blah. As for another day, find a good commentary and you can read about that. But the point is, obviously, a demon must leave and look for another place to rest. And so Jesus has something to say about it. And so the demon says, I will return to my house from which I came. Can't find anything else. I like that house back there. And when that demon comes... It finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes in and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What is Jesus saying here? This is where we're going to connect to marveling. When Jesus casts out a demon, don't just sit there and marvel. Acknowledge him as Messiah and give him your life. Let him come in and take residence in you. Because if you just marvel and go your merry way, that demon is going to come back with seven others. And your state is going to be worse than it was at the beginning. You follow that? That's what Jesus is saying. Let the seed land in your heart and grow a plant and produce fruit. Don't just marvel at this stuff. And so Jesus is continuing to make himself the point. One is either with him or against him. People either join in the gathering or they're leading people away from him. Join with him is his message. This is what Daryl Bach says in his commentary. The picture is of a person who has experienced a great act of God. A sign. But has not responded to it. Belief. Since the occupied house is left empty, the person has learned nothing and it is still, and is still subject to the same demonic influence. The tragedy is that by not responding, the opportunity for a permanent reversal is lost. Failure to have God enter in has left the person in peril. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. There is a danger in experiencing God's work only to leave one's spiritual condition unfilled with anything from God. The demon can leave, but God must enter. And if Jesus does not get residence, if there's only marveling that takes place, then what's going to happen later is going to be worse than the former. Thomas Watson, a great Puritan, put it this way. He was talking about repentance. He says, the people he fears the most are the people who sit continuously under the teaching of God and are not changed. He says, by continuously sitting underneath the teaching of God, to use Jesus' words here, your state becomes worse than it was when you started. Why? Because there's a hardening that's taking place. You're hearing, and you're, so to speak, marveling but Jesus isn't taking residence in you. And Jesus is trying to give these warnings. Jesus is here. And so what happens? As he says these things, a the woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. I mean, she's just overwhelmed with Jesus' teaching. But notice, here's what Jesus says. He's trying to make the point. Again, keep the soils in mind. No, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Don't just marvel. Don't just hear what I'm saying. Don't just say, wow, what a great teacher. I need to take residence inside of you. And I need to begin controlling every facet of your being until I come again. And so we ask ourselves the question, is Jesus controlling every facet of our being? How we spend our days... How we spend our time. How we spend our money. The things that we value most in life. As we move toward relationships. Is Jesus guiding in all of that? Is Jesus a part of all of these things in our lives? That's the first challenge. And so this this idea of paying attention to God's word is something that Luke is going to continue to bring out. James brings it out too, doesn't he? Be not only hearers of God's word, but be doers of God's word. Let it take residence in your life and and live it out. But now we have the second challenge. Remember back in verse 16, it said this, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Well, this is going to be picked up in verse 29. Jesus knows that. He knows that they're looking for a sign. So in verse 29, when the crowds were increasing He began to say, by the way, it's just an interesting sidelight. When the crowds were increasing, let your eyes slip down to chapter 12, verse 1. Watch what's happening here. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people have gathered together, they were trampling on one another. You see where Luke is taking us? Jesus, is he's got everybody's attention right now. And so at this moment, the crowds are increasing. In chapter 12, verse 1, we'll look at that next week. They're trampling over one another, listening to what Jesus has said. Jesus has an audience. But it's not just about hearing or marveling over signs. It's letting him take up residence and obeying the very word that he hears. But the second challenge is what I would call a rejection of his message. The first challenge, I simply summarize that as a rejection of his divinity. All right, this is by the Beelzebub. You're not of God the Father. That's a challenge of his authority. But here we have a, a challenge or a divinity challenge of his, a rejection of his message. And so in verses 29 to 36, let me read those. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation's an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something is greater something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And in these verses, the point of Jesus, I hope, is, is rather simple for you. Jonah was a messenger, brought a message, and the people of Nineveh responded. Solomon was a messenger who had a message, at least at the beginning of his life. He ended really poorly. And the queen of Sheba came from the far ends of the earth to listen to that message. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus is greater than Solomon. And he is proclaiming a message And so the point is this, Jews, are you responding? The Gentiles in Jonah's day did. The Gentiles in Solomon's day did. But you Jews, you yourself, the bearers of the law, the one with whom God is in covenant relationship, you yourselves are rejecting him. And so you know what's going to happen? The Gentiles are going to rise up and judge you on that day. Now that was unthinkable for a Jew. The Gentiles are going to rise up and judge you on that day. In other words, we're we're still getting the same thing. Jesus's point must be given. You, You can write down in your notes, if you take notes, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. That's where the author of Hebrews says, listen, God has been speaking through all these prophets all this time, but now we've got Jesus, God's own son. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. I'm now in your midst. Now... To me, that's a a little bit simpler point, but let's go on to verse 33 to 36. These are verses I've just puzzled with for a long time, trying to understand them. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it's bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, You be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And I've, I've read this in all the different Gospels. It's all in a different spot. And What does it mean? Well, as we follow the flow here, again, thinking and keeping in mind everything we've seen so far, keeping in mind the other Gospels are going to end with the parable of the sower, what Jesus is talking about is, again, the light is here. I think that's going to be Jesus. It's going to be his message. And your eye is watching that light. You need to become full of that light. You follow that? You need to become full of that light. If your light's bad, you're not seeing this right, and you're full of darkness, that's going to be problematic for you, but you need to receive that light. That light needs to get all the way down in you. It needs to emanate from you. Either you're with me or you're against me. And if you're with me, you're full of light. There's not darkness in you. You're full of light. And I think that's the point that Jesus is trying to say, because... His concern is the darkness that might linger in people if they don't fully follow him. Believe that Jesus is the light is what he's saying. Receive the light. Be changed by it. Illuminate that light to others. But let's go on to the third challenge. The question is righteousness. In verses 37 to 52, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash Before dinner. Again, you can go over to Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 4 and it provides an explanation of exactly what's going on. This has nothing to do with Mosaic Law. This has everything to do with the traditions of the elders. This is not biblical practice. It's simply the way they understood the Bible was to be applied to their life. But these are their traditions. And so what we have here is a questioning of his righteousness and how he lives his life. And so the Lord says to them, now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. So now Jesus is taking on the religious authorities who they tried to keep everything outward in order. But what is Jesus' concern again? It's the complete inside. He wants the light to go all the way inside. He wants when a demon is cast out for the message to get all the way inside. The other gospel writer is going to end with the parable of the soils. It's not just that the seed was thrown. It's not just the seed was planted. It's not just that it grew up a plant. It's that it's a plant that produces fruit. That's what Jesus is after here. And so in these last verses, what he does is he just goes after the Pharisees for all of their inconsistencies. And then the lawyer Poor guy stood up and said, teacher, and saying these things, you insult us also, in verse 45. And so Jesus goes after him, woe to you lawyers. And it's the same thing. And one of the points he brings up is, you're not gathering with me, you're scattering people. You're actually leading them to death. You're leading them away from me. And the light is here, the message is here, the sign is here. It's to produce belief in your life, and you're going to miss out on that. If you continue down the path, you're you're on. And so we could look at each one of the things that are being said there, but the the major point is Jesus, again, is saying, Pharisees, it's what you do with me that matters. And what you need to do with me is you need to bow before me because your king of kings is here. Your lord of lords is here. And you need to listen to everything I'm saying. You need to obey that because God's kingdom is here, and I am the king And they're going to miss out on all of that. And what does this lead to in verses 53 and 54? As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. I mean, they're just after Jesus at this point. They don't like him. He's now challenging them in the same way that maybe if Jesus showed up here today, we might not like him too much. Because maybe we're deeply embedded in the way we live our lives. And so, how do we deal with all of this? How might we challenge Jesus in our lives? I want to give you two thoughts about that. I know we're going a little bit long, but there's a lot of verses here. So, we're trying to get now to the point here. Jesus is here, his teaching points to truth. How are we to live? We must yield to him. We must follow him. We must obey every word that he has for us in his word. To reject him is going to reju- result in just ju- uh, judgment. You're going to have darkness in you, and that's not going to be good. You're going to be scattering, and that's not going to be good. The generations of Jonah, the generations of Solomon, they're going to rise up, and they're going to judge you is what Jesus says to the leaders there. But the, we have two main verses here that really I want, want you to keep in your mind. Verses 23 and verse 28. Let me just reread those. Verse 23 says this. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then in verse 28, Jesus makes the very clear statement. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Those become key verses. But let's think about two ways we can respond to this. We challenge Jesus when we claim to follow him but deny his authority over our daily lives. Joni and I have done a lot of, performed a lot of wedding ceremonies throughout the years. So we've done a lot of premarital counseling. And one of the things that's been really interesting to us, when we talk to these, this man and this woman who are wanting to come together in marriage, we ask them, we, we use particular material, Where they have learned about being a husband or about being a wife. Where have you learned what it means to be a good husband or what it means to be a good wife? And you know where the word of God fits on their numbers 1 through 10? Way down at the bottom. In other words, what they're learning about what it means to be a husband or be a wife is not from God and his word. That's way down the list. Now I ask you this, is, is that a challenge to the authority of Jesus in our life? If we are taking our cues from other things in the world rather than from God Himself, from Christ Himself. And we've got to ask ourselves, what is it that forms our worldview? It's so interesting for me working with students um, at Biola. So often they come in, they've got their minds made up on things. And then you open up God's Word and you say, well, let's look at what God's Word says. Well, I don't really like that verse. Really? Excuse me. Well, let's just rip it right out of our Bibles then. We can challenge Jesus' authority when we don't make him Lord of all in our lives. Think about the ways that the church has done this. And I know that by mentioning some of these things, that some things might be shameful for you. And There's no intent to cause shame here. The intent is for us to think about our lives. Think about the skyrocketing divorce in the church, What does that say about our attitude toward our Lord? Bitterness that can creep in, the lack of forgiveness. I wish we would have had time to look at that more in um, the earlier part of chapter 11 last week. The connection it has to the other gospel that says, hey, if you don't forgive others, God's not going to forgive you. God takes it serious. He calls us to live a radically different life than the world around us. Uh, racism is a big issue in our culture today, and is doing everything they can to address it. But one day, I wrote a letter to some of our leaders at Biola, and I said, listen, if Biola is dealing with racism in the same way our world is dealing with racism, then there's something wrong with what we're doing. We don't take our cues from the world. We don't become politically correct. We take our cues from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we deal with these things in a way that honors him and exalts him. Where are we getting our cues? How do we spend the money that's entrusted to us? How do we approach difficulties in our lives? Do we see that God's at work? Referencing that prayer last week. It's about his will being done. So when he takes us through difficulty, guess what? God's doing something that we didn't have planned. But our life is to be about him. Do we oppose Jesus? Do we challenge Jesus? Or do we embrace what he brings into our life to the glory of his great name? When issues confront us in our world, do we find ourselves searching the Bible to find out what the Bible has to say about these things? Are we sobered by the way we think about things to the degree that we are? We so long to speak what god would want us to speak and to think like god would want us to speak and so again we ask ourselves what's the role of god's word in our life and i know with so many christians I, i know i know i need to read the bible more i'm not talking about just reading i'm talking about studying it learning letting it form the way we think or we are in peril of opposing jesus in the way that we live does that make sense to you We've got to be formed by what God's word says. The second one that I think we can think about is we challenge Jesus when we turn to our earthly things in the midst of difficulty in order to find relief apart from Jesus. This is idolatry, and it opposes Jesus. When we are in pain or difficulty, and we're coming up with with a solution, and it's other than Jesus. And I'm not talking about the Sunday school answer. Well, what what do you think we should do? Jesus, I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about a well-informed theology of living where we are looking to Jesus and we recognize it is true when it says, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's who I am. You weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. You won't find rest anywhere else. Jeremiah 2 says, when you try to find rest somewhere else, it's like putting water into a broken cistern when you're thirsty you will not find relief but we we all have our earthly things that we go after in other words when you're in difficulty where is it that you go what do you think will solve your problems a higher paying job that might be helpful it's not going to solve your problems if i could just get married that might be helpful but it's not going to solve your problems It really goes back to the Sunday school answer, Jesus. And when we look elsewhere, we're opposing Jesus. We're saying, you are not sufficient for me. Jeremiah, or Isaiah 44 puts it it this way. We look to our earthly things and we say, deliver me, for you are my God. I can find life in you. I can feel better looking at pornography or eating way too much. Whatever it might be, I can feel better about these things. I can feel better by having sex outside of marriage. I can feel better by spending way beyond my means. I just feel good when I do these things. I can feel better when you just fill in the blank, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be. When we look to those things and say, deliver me for thou art my God, we're saying, Jesus, you are not sufficient for me. And we oppose Jesus. And I think Jesus would have something to say to us about that. Now, I don't know what that is for you. I don't know if God's word is forming your worldview right now or not. I don't know if your first reaction in the midst of difficulty is to go to Jesus or not. Those are just two categories to think in terms of. But what Jesus is saying in this passage is, you're only going to find life in me. And what it means to find life in me is when the seed is scattered and it lands on your heart, it's going to go deep in, it's going to produce a plant, and you're going to bear fruit. And we're talking about kingdom fruit. You're going to bear that fruit. And that's why the other gospels put that right after this. It's about the heart. And where is the heart? And how do we in the midst of the culture in which we live see beyond it to what God is calling us to do? How do we stand against the culture when God's word is very clear to us? Or do we just cave in and continue to be a part of the world in which we live and live like everybody else lives? Jesus is saying back then, if you're not with me, you're against me. I'm gathering. If you're not with me, you're scattering. And I know so many of you in your story, we, we want Jesus more than anything. And So let's let the Holy Spirit work in our lives right now. Just, just bow for just a moment. What is that? In your life. Maybe there's an area of your life where you're just, you know what God's word says, you're just not doing it. You need to bring that to the Lord. You need to ask Him to help you. Bring it to the Lord right now. Don't let this time slip away without doing business with Jesus. Cry out to him right now. Lord, we need you to help us. I know that so many of us in this room, we want to live for you. We want to exalt you. So, Lord, in your mercy, would you allow your word to break through, to plant itself in our heart, produce that plant, bring about that fruit in a way that honors you. Lord, help us to see life differently for you in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.